Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today we're going to explore the origins of Tony the Tiger. Well, if you've ever had a box of cereal on your table growing up in this country, you probably have seen Tony the Tiger at one point or another. Whether you were a fan of Frosted Flakes or not, you're probably familiar with that famous cat. So I thought it would be very interesting to explore this character who came out of Battle Creek, Michigan. So stick around and join me. In today's episode, I'm going to be using a book called Serializing America. And it was written by two authors, Scott Bruce and Bill Crawford. If you can still get your hands on this book, I have a hardback edition that I bought 20 years ago. And it was one of my first books that I read when I moved to Battle Creek, Michigan. I was fascinated with the cereal industry. And this book was available at one of the local uh, gift stores at the time. And I got myself a copy and I read it cover to cover. And I was just blown away about the amount of detail that these guys went into in the early origins of the cereal industry. And it's quite Quite fascinating. And they have a chapter in here on Tony the Tiger and the origins of Tony the Tiger and how that advertising period with animal caricatures took off in the cereal industry. And they go into a lot of the dynamics of what was going on in the country at the time. And it's just a very fascinating chapter. So that's the main one that I'm going to be referring to here today. And it really begins around the 1940s. Um, a fierce tension could be said to have gripped the Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and the 1,000 humans that worked at the Disney operation in the spring of 1940. The company had narrowly escaped crumbling beneath a 4.5 million debt. Creative artists who had once enjoyed the freewheeling camaraderie of an open studio and close contact with Walt Disney were now confined to work units with a control desk supervising their actions. Rumors began to circulate about massive layoffs and the massive profits Disney making for himself. And so, on May 19, 1941, the animators who created Pinocchio, Fantasia, and other Disney classics struck the studio. They went on strike. And this whole incident really didn't set well with Walt Disney. And the confrontation led him to be very anti-communist following this incident. And to such a degree that he testified before Congress in the House Committee on Un-American Activities in 1947. And the creator of Mickey Mouse told Washington that the communists in the movie industry really ought to be smoked out and shown for what they are. So what does this have to do with Tony the Tiger, you might ask? Well, bear with me for a minute. Some of the artists that were smoked out in this red wave of hunting out communists during that period in Hollywood, California, were original animators of Disney. And Bill Teitla was one of the animators who was forced out of Disney after the strike. And part of his deal was um, he was considered to be actively involved in the strike. And we'll get more into him in a little bit. Um, but he was one of the geniuses that was the perfectionist behind the terrifying black god scene in Fantasia's Night on Bald Mountain sequence. And if you've ever seen 
the movie Fantasia and that whole scene where Mickey Mouse is on the Black Mountain and that whole dark, creepy thing, that was all his artistic genius that was behind it. And that was who Bill Teitler was. So after being booted and forced out of Disney, it was near the end of World War II, and he was um, looking for work. So he went to the Big Apple, New York, and he arrived there right around the right time because the television industry was just beginning to take off. And it was the new media in the American spectrum that was on the horizon. And so network executives and independent producers on the television combined with advertising agencies were working furiously to fill in the 24-hour day vacuum for programming and make it profitable. So they believed the future of television at the time lay in things like Wild Bill Hitchcock and Captain Video and other programs produced and owned by sponsors. And this included a lot of networks. And and there was also a part of the industry that still believed in the newspaper model during those days as a potential for advertising. And this was the early 1950s, late 1940s era. So the newspaper advertising was still very strong. And that was a big area for marketing, particularly new products. So in 1949... The advertising agency of Benton and Bowles approached Tightlia to produce an animated TV commercial for a new cereal product called Sugar Crisp. And this advertising campaign was to include three bears that were identical. One of them was named Candy, the other Dandy, and the other was Handy. And the furry trio scampered to the commercial misadventures while an announcer declared, for breakfast it's dandy, for snacks it's so handy, or eat it like candy. Although this was a bit crude for the artistic standards that Taitla was used to with Disney, the ads for Sugar Crisp were historic. And for the first time, animated characters appeared on the television screen to sell cereal to children. Now, Taitla was not able to capitalize fully on his new breakthrough because partly because of his own artistry and partly because of his own politics. And the political agency in 1950 started going to the American business consultants and they published a report called Red Channels, the Report of Communist Influences in Radio and Television. And they fingered Bill Teitla and 150 other people as a threat to national security in that report. So even though he'd had just great, wonderful success with this Benton and Bowles advertising agency creating the Sugar Bears campaign, he was booted out. So the three Sugar Bears were moved over to another company called Pelican Films, and this was a New York-based studio run by a man named Jack Zander. He was a former MGM animator. And so these um, advertisements for post-serial were starting to take off and they were wanting to expand into new ones. So nonetheless, the Sugar Crisp Bears advertising campaign caused an immediate concern within the industry of their competitors. And in 1951, Kellogg informed Leo Burnett that a new pre-suite called Sugar Frosted Flakes was on its way. And Sugar Crisp had the sugar bears, so Kellogg said, we want animals too. And that was reported by a man named Don Tennant, who was the leader of the Burnett's advertising agency for television. So Tennant 
and his colleagues at the Leo Burnett Advertising Agency had to come up with an animal that would overcome the parental bias against sugar-coated cereals while still attracting children. All of these ad men looked into motivational research and other theoretical works, and they came across a behaviorist named Conrad Lorenz, who published a book called Studies in Animal and Human Behavior. And in this book, Lorenz discussed the fact that the physical features of juvenility triggered innate releasing mechanisms for affection in adults. Big eyes, broad foreheads, and small chins made parents sigh. So the Burnett Advertising Agency, reading this piece of information in this published work on behavior, thought, wonder if it would make them buy a product that had such a character on it. So animals in general were obviously children's friends, according to the viewpoint of the advertising agency. And children do tend to play with their food, so they assumed that animals meeting these characteristics were natural. So Leo Burnett assigned a man named Jack Baxter to become a creative director in charge of the Kellogg account. And they sat there and they brainstormed animals for sugar-frosted flakes. And there was three of them in this uh, committee, this group of guys brainstorming animals. And so they put four animals together. One of them was a kangaroo. Another was an elephant. Another was a new, that's spelled G-N-U. And another was a tiger. And one of the art directors named Dick Wiener later said that the tiger was put into the mix at that time because he was a symbol of energy. So they came up with rough sketches following the criteria that they had drawn up based on Conrad's Lorentz published works on psychology. Meeting those characteristics with the big eyes, broad foreheads, and small chins, and they came up with these four different characters. They named them all. The first one was Tony the Tiger, obviously, Katie the Kangaroo, Newt the New, and Elmo the Elephant. So all four of these characters were put together, and they all said the same, sugar-frosted flakes are great. Now, over the years, a lot of different people claim to have come up with uh, their great line, but they also claimed later on that it was Jack Baxter who came up with Tony's great line from those that were there at the time. And it actually coined one of the most popular slogans in advertising history when they did that. So Elmo the Elephant and Newt the New quickly disappeared from the view as they did further market testing, and they ended up moving forward with Tony the Tiger and Katie the Kangaroo. And both of them appeared on cereal boxes of Frosted Flakes in 1952. Both characters were on individual boxes promoting Frosted Flakes and they all hit the shelves at the same time. Now, there was a whole bunch of professionals in the advertising world that were part of like Advertising Magazine, which is all these, these intricate organizations within the advertising industry that always seemed to want to lay a comment on something. And they went back to Kellogg and said, oh, we don't see the potential in Tony, but you know, that Katie character, oh, you got something there. But Wisely enough, the marketing team at Kellogg's said, well, that's your opinion, but with this test marketing, 
the ones that are flying off the shelves are the ones with Tony the Tiger and the Katie the Kangaroo are not selling. So they made the wise decision to phase out Katie the Kangaroo and strictly ran with Tony's because Tony's packages were flying off the shelves while Katie's packages were just sitting there. So they ignored the critics and the professional admin and Kellogg decided to retire the kangaroo and focus all their energies exclusively on Tony the Tiger. So they sent Don Tennant out to Los Angeles and he took Tony out there to get him animated. And the first efforts they made kind of flopped. They didn't really translate it well to the screen. But then they hired a, another Disney refugee that had been booted from the Disney industry, similar to Titlia. This man's name was Howard Swift, and he had worked on the movie Dumbo. And he was forced out for having been one of the Disney organizers of the strike. So he was kind of blacklisted, especially with Disney. But he was a gifted character designer, and Swift transformed the storybook Tony into the character who roamed the American serial aisles and airwaves for, for the following 40 years. So Howard Swift was instrumental in bringing the animated character of Tony the Tiger to life into the commercials. And Tony the Tiger became an instant success. He surpassed the Sugar Bears and... People today don't even remember the three original Sugar Bears. I think Post, at a later time, created just the single Sugar Bear, which most people are familiar with. But the three original were kind of eclipsed in this big uprising of Tony the Tiger taking over the airways and becoming super popular. And this, of course, started after 1952 and continued forward all through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. But as a result of the success of Tony the Tiger, Kellogg, of course, wanted to create other characters characters for some of their other cereal brands. And of course, we're familiar with a lot of those. If you walk up and down the cereal aisle, all these other cereal companies started following suit with their own characters. And some are notable and well-known today. But Tony the Tiger reigns as the king of the cereal boxes in terms of the cereal cartoon characters that are most well-known. I think if you were to survey people today and ask them what is the name of the famous tiger on a cereal box? Everybody would know the name Tony. And if you were to ask them what, what is the name of a character that you'd see on a cereal box, odds are most people would re remember Tony above other names. But you could do your own test on that. There's an interesting little story here that came out of the 1960s regarding Tony the Tiger in the Leo Burnett Agency. And so if you're a little bit squeamish... Yeah, I might want to plug your ears on some of this because it's a little bit risque. But I'm going to include it here because it's a bit humorous as well. So in the early 60s, a crew from the Leo Burnett Agency shot a series of live tiger commercials for Frosted Flakes at a Chicago zoo. The crew wanted to capture the jaw movements of the tiger on film and later refine them through animation to simulate Tony's praising the bowl of cereal. So basically, they wanted to film live Tiger at the zoo eating so that they could take his jaw movements and simulate them in the animation to make Tony seem more real. That was the project for filming. So one morning, the film crew set up in front of the tiger pen ready to shoot the male tiger. But there was a hitch. The female tiger over in the next pen was in heat. And 
the zookeeper came by after they'd been trying to get this male tiger to eat and he wasn't going to eat. He wasn't doing anything. The zookeeper said to him, you're not going to get him to do anything until he's sexually satisfied. So the director and the crew, you know, said, all right, fine. We got a limited time to be here, so let's get him satisfied. So the zookeeper arranged for the interlude between the female tiger and the two tigers sat there and had sexual intercourse in front of them. And they filmed it because, well, they had the cameras there. And so after the male tiger had uh, finished, they put him back in their own pens again. And, and then the male tiger gobbled down his breakfast and they were able to capture the footage that they needed for the advertising. So the funny part of this is, is after producing the ad for Kellogg, Burnett's crew decided to have a little fun with their extra tiger footage that they had captured in this experience. And they took the fornication scene and stripped into the animated jaw footage and dubbed the new track. And so after their little X-rated video of the tiger, they had Tony's draw drop open and howl it's great so that was a little bit of an inside story that came out of the leo burnett agency and it's doubtful that you'd hear that story directly from kellogg's today but that was an inside story that these authors had gotten from the leo burnett agency and then they also explained that when they filmed some of these live action commercials where tony walks in the room and is talking to humans and you probably have seen those commercials still on TV today where you got live action kids sitting there eating cereal or adults and Tony walks in and they turn to the tiger and they talk to him. Well, when they started doing that in the 60s, they found that adults were more difficult to film with the animated Tony because Tony wasn't there. They had to try to get the adults to get in their head that this was a bit of a make-believe shot. So they would put a picture of Tony over the side or a statue of Tony and so that the adults would do their talk to the tiger. But they found that it was a lot easier to film kids and get them into the world of make-believe and make them talk to the tiger in the commercials. So that's just another little insight into the world of advertising that you probably didn't know about. You know, when they did these live action films with live people and you've got an animated character there, obviously when they're doing the live footage, the character is not there. He is added later. But they're interacting with him and so the adults were more difficult to film. And this was a pioneer age of television advertising. So they were breaking new things into the industry in the 60s when they were doing this type of stuff. This wasn't things that you had seen before in advertising at that period. So uh, it's just very interesting to know that kids were a lot easier to get the concept and work with the imaginary tiger that wasn't there when they were filming. So that's the story of how Tony the Tiger came into existence. There was uh, the inside story behind the advertising agency and the whole thing that inspired in the chain of events that happened to change the industry and the fact that the strike happened at Disney early on and a lot of these artists were kicked to the wind and they were looking for work at the same time that the rise of the television industry was happening and some of them made their way into the advertising agencies that were working for television and um, although some of them were again blacklisted under that whole hunting down the red communist thing that happened around that period of time some of them still made inroads into 
the entertainment and advertising industry that changed the world of cereal and how cereal was marketed. And suddenly we had all of these characters. And this book, Serializing America, goes into much more depth of, of some of the other characters that came into being following the revolutionary explosion of Tony the Tiger on the scene. And none of the other characters that followed ever eclipsed Tony. And I think you could probably say that some of them may have come close in popularity, but none of them came as popular as Tony the Tiger. And if you look at the early drawings of Tony the Tiger, and even Katie the Kangaroo, if you want to Google that and look it up, there are some images out there of her, you'll see that they had those characteristics, you know, the small mouth, the wide-spaced eyes, and all of those things that they were drawing in, particularly the early Tony drawings. And uh, you can see why it was appealing, and there must have been some logic in that uh, psychology of the drawing of the whole thing. So it's just a very fascinating history. Of course, all of this cereal manufacturing for Frosted Flakes came out of Battle Creek, Michigan, which is right here in southwest Michigan. And the whole cereal industry with Post and Kellogg's have, have their birthplace here in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, General Mills is over, I believe, in Wisconsin. They were the later ones to the table in the world of cereal production. Um, but the whole cereal industry is described in this book, and it's a very fascinating read. So if you can get a copy of that book, it's called Serializing America, The Unsweetened Story of American breakfast cereal. And it's quite a page turner. I think I read it in, in a couple of nights when I first bought it because it was so fascinating. And uh, of course, I grew up in that era and so probably many of you did as well. So I think you'd find it a fascinating read. And I didn't check to see if it was still in print. If it is, I will put a link to that in the description of this podcast episode. And uh, up to date, I have not really jumped into too much of storytelling with Post and Kellogg or the cereal industry in my podcast or even in my uh, YouTube channel because I've just felt like those stories are so well done in other areas and there's so much information out about those industries with the Kellogg brothers and uh, CW Post and I haven't really delved into digging into those story because they're more commonly known and I tend to try to narrow in on the stories that people have not heard much about. However, I probably will start putting in little segments about W.K. Kellogg and his brother John Harvey Kellogg and even C.W. Post in future podcast episodes, and I may even venture into it in the video world a little bit, um, just because they are very fascinating stories and they were very incredible individuals that did some magnificent things that changed the dynamic of an entire region so and the, and the nation and the world so that being said that is the little story of tony the tiger and if you like today's podcast please be sure to leave a nice review if you could on any app that you are listening on if you'd like to reach out to me about future stories that you'd like to hear me research on this podcast or maybe even video form, you can reach out to me at michaeldelaware.com. And also on that website, there are ways that you can help donate to the work that I'm doing here. And there's even merchandise you can buy if you'd like to do something like that and wear some t-shirts or sweatshirts this fall. And until next time, when we take another journey into history and we explore yet another fascinating tale from yesterday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>